Well, today I want to tell you a story, a true story, a story from the Bible, that uh, actually most uh, Christians don't know this story, but it is a very powerful and encouraging story, and it just happens to be from the time period in which we are in our series of God's grand story of the Old Testament. The story I want to tell you today is the story of Esther, from the book of Esther. Now, this story actually happens during the time after the Persian Empire has conquered the Babylonian Empire, and that happened in the period of 465 B.C. Now, Ahasuerus, or also known as Xerxes, was the king of this Media Persia Empire. And the Jewish people that were held captivity in captivity in Babylon, once the Persian Empire overtakes the Babylonian Empire, they set the Jews free to go back to their homeland in Palestine. But a lot of the Jews remained spread out throughout the 127 provinces of Persia. Now, this kingdom actually extended from Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey, down into Africa and all the way over into India. So the story begins now with Ahasuerus. He is the king of this Persia media empire. He's throwing a party. Actually, he's thrown three banquets in a row. And there is all kinds of, you know, excessive drinking going on. I mean, the king just turns the palace into a frat house. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Esther chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So the text basically says that on the seventh day of this party, when the king was drunk out of his mind, he sends for Queen Vashti to come in. Now, what do you think is going on here? He's, he's been showing off all of his possessions so far. He now wants to show off his ultimate possession to everyone who's gathered, and that is his trophy wife. So he says, Vashti, come on in. Now, what do you think he wants her to do? Do you think that he wants to show off her brains? Like have her come in and do some math problems? No, he wants to show off her beauty. So it says this in verse 11, in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. So he wants to parade her in front of a group of drunken men like a prize steer at a 4-H show. That's what he wants to do as a tribute to his status. And Queen Vashti says, no. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. So the king is angry about this. He's, he is furious, and he's actually going to take it, this issue, to the Supreme Court, make it a matter of state. 
He's basically saying, what am I going to do with my wife? She won't do what I tell her to do. Of course, the king isn't concerned about justice right now, and he's not concerned about the law. He wants to find a way to get back at her for humiliating him in front of everybody. He wants to show that he's still in control. Well, one of his advisors, by the name of Memuchin, says, King, you know that if word of this gets out, I mean, it could threaten the whole social structure of our empire. I mean, what happens if word gets out, then wives are not going to listen to their husbands anymore. So, verse 19, McMuckin advises the king to give a certain order. He says this, If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout the kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. So this work pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So the king goes in for this new edict, and it includes, this edict includes removing Vashti now as queen, but also removing her as his wife. So now the king is going to get a new wife who's going to serve as the queen. All right, chapter 2 now, verse 2. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. So now he's getting advice on how to get his next wife and the next queen. Now, verse 3, their advice continues. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them so they're preparing to be seen and evaluated. Verse 4, Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So now what they're going to do is they're going to have kind of a Miss Medes and Persians beauty contest throughout all 127 provinces. Pick it up, verse 5. Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconia, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she know she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So one of the people, one of the young ladies who is kind of drafted into this beauty contest, it's not like they volunteered for this, they're drafted into it. Well, one of these who's drafted into the beauty contest is this young Jewish girl 
named Esther. And we're told that she was adopted by her cousin, Mordecai. Older cousin Mordecai is raising, has raised her like a daughter. So she, along with all those who were drafted into the pageant, goes before the king. Now, first she has to get past the prelims, which she does. And she's made the finals. And when she makes the finals, she gets to go up before the king. And the king sees her. And when the king sees her, she wins the whole contest. Let's pick it up, verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashtai. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. So the king chose Esther to be his beauty queen. But we're going to see in the story that actually God put her in this place for an important strategic time to use her to show her influence and cause God to be able to do what he wants to do. So Esther becomes queen. Her guardian, Mordecai, sat at the king's gate, it says, which means that he was one of the officials in the king's court. So know that about Mordecai. And also know that during his time in which he was an official in the king's court, Mordecai actually uncovered a plot to assassinate the king, and Mordecai ends up saving the king's life. This is an important detail in the story. Now chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the doors, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. So this foiled assassination attempt gets recorded in the official records of the king. Keep that detail in mind. Now we're going to get to chapter 3 because we're introduced to another major character in this story. Now we've already met Esther and we've met Mordecai and King Ahasuerus. Now we meet evil Haman. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. So we've got this guy named Haman, who's essentially now made second in command in the empire. He's kind of like the chief operating officer, and everybody bows down to him except for one guy, 
Mordecai, Esther's guardian, will not bow to him. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman is filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So now Haman wants to do more than just kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all the Jews, all of his people. So Haman wants to commit genocide on the Jewish people that are scattered throughout the 127 provinces of Persia. He wants to kill them all. Verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people. They do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I, Haman, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. So Haman wants to kill all the Jews in Persia, and he's willing to pay for it himself. Now verse 10. Well, then the king took off his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours, the people also, to do with them as you please. Now the king's like, it's kind of like, okay, whatever. I mean, he's not even really paying attention. He doesn't even know who these people are, the Jews. It's like, it's like it's, here's the ring, take care of it. He just hands over his authority. Verse 1 of chapter 4 now. So when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter into the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting weeping and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. So the word gets out to all the Jews in 127 provinces of this edict that they were going to be killed. And they go into mourning and wailing. Now this word actually gets to Esther too. In the court, the king's court, Mordecai charges Esther through an inter Mediterranean said, basically, you must go to the king and you must make supplication and treat him, beg him on behalf of the people. Esther, it's up to you. Now, understandably, as we read this whole story, Esther doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to do this because, as the story tells us, that she hasn't been summoned by the king for 30 days. 
And you can't go to the king unless you're summoned to go to him. It could cause you your life. Even though she's queen, she hadn't been summoned for 30 days. Now remember, the king has a whole harem. She has to be wondering if maybe uh, he doesn't think about her the same way anymore. He's not pleased with her anymore. So if she goes in unsummoned, it could cost her her life. And Mordecai says, you need to tell the king to, you know, reverse this order. But she's afraid about doing this. Verse 12 of chapter 4, when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Mordecai told them to reply this, do not imagine, Esther, that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So Mordecai wants Esther to know something. He wants her to know that you've not been brought to this point of influence in your life just so you can accumulate a wonderful wardrobe and precious gems and exotic fragrances. You've not been brought to this point in your life to just be the most attractive, desirable woman in the world. You have not been brought in this point uh, in your life for any of those reasons. You've been brought to this point in your life by God. You've been brought at this moment to work justice, to spare God's people from great suffering, to keep God's dream alive of a new community. You've been brought to this point to be part of God's plan to redeem the world with those who know God being scattered throughout the kingdom. So he issues a strong challenge to Esther. He says, if you say no here, Esther, you're going to miss your whole purpose for existence. So what does Esther do? Here's a reply to Mordecai, verse 16 of chapter 4. She says, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus, I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She says, okay, I'm not going to try to face this situation in my own beauty and in my own ingenuity and wisdom. I'm going to fast and pray, and I want you to fast and pray and get all the Jews to fast and pray. And then I'll go in, and I'll risk it all. And if I perish, I perish. So now Esther, in her mind, survival is not her highest goal anymore. She's given herself over to something bigger, something bigger than her own existence, something bigger than, you know, attaining royalty. Now in Esther's mind, you know, death's no longer the worst case scenario for her disobedience is. So Esther fasts and prays, so do all the Jews, fasting and praying. On the third day, she puts on her royal robes, she stands in the inner court and she asks to see the king. She's not been summoned. 
She's asking to see the king. If the king extends his scepter to her, she will live. If he doesn't, she will die. So she stands there waiting. The king sees her. He extends his scepter to her. She will live, at least for now. Verse 3 of chapter 5 now. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Now, this is king talk here. You got to kind of read between the lines. I mean, he, they, they really don't mean that when they say that. Kind of like, uh, I'm in a good mood. What do you want? But at this point, Esther can't blurt out, I want you to revoke the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians. I want you to put down your chief of staff. Instead, what does she do? Now, she's about to, you know, God has given her wisdom after all this fasting and praying. And so she says, what I'm asking of you, king, is that she will come to a party that I'm going to throw a banquet tomorrow. You know, I want to give you a I want a banquet. And so, and I want Haman to come too with you. Okay, verse 5. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And they drank their wine at the banquet. The king, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it'll be done. He's not a very original guy. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I'll prepare for them tomorrow. And tomorrow I'll do as the king says. So she basically says, I want to throw another one tomorrow, and tomorrow I'll make my request. Tomorrow I'll, I'll ask you what I want. So now she's skillfully got the king to where the king's already agreed to grant it. He doesn't know what it is yet. He's already agreed beforehand to grant it. But she said, but it'll be tomorrow at the banquet. Okay, so now we're ready for the climax of the story, except the author leaves us in a bit of suspense because we need to know something else about the story and about Haman. Now we're chapter 5, verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther, the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her with the king. Yet now he's going to whine. Yet all this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then Zerus, his wife, and all his friends said to him, here's their solution. Have a gallows 50 cubits high, about 75 feet high, made in the morning, and ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. 
Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And that advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Now, during that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And so, as they read those things, of all the things they could possibly read in the history of the king's life, they read about the time that Mordecai saved the king. But he had never been honored for that. He had never been rewarded, which is kind of a blot on the king's reputation. So the king needs to somehow honor him because he saved his life. Let's pick it up chapter 6 now. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So now the king is thinking, I need to honor Mordecai. I never have done that. That's on his mind that night, and that's on his mind when he wakes up. Now the next morning, remember that's on his mind, Haman arrives, and he knows, of course, nothing about what happened last night, nothing about the king's insomnia, nothing about that, you know, what was read to him and nothing about what's on his mind, on the king's mind. What is on his mind is to honor Mordecai. Haman knows nothing of this. Haman walks in, chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? See, in the king's mind, he's thinking, what can I do for Mordecai? Haman doesn't know that's what the king's thinking. Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be you know, handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then the king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for Mordecai the Jew who's sitting at the king's gate and do not fall short of anything at all that you've said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square, proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So that's not what Haman was planning on at all. You can imagine his humiliation, his frustration. Now verse 12 of chapter 6, that Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried home, mourning, with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zerus' wife and to his friends everything that happened to him. And then his wise men and Zerus, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him. 
but he will surely, you will surely fall before him. Now, while they're still talking, verse 14, the king's eunuchs arrived hastily, brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And at the banquet, the king says to Esther, basically, okay, you've been fattening me up long enough. What do you want? And Esther, with utter dependence on God, with an amazing wisdom, says to the king that she and her people, the Jews, are about to be destroyed. Let's read it. Chapter 7 now. The queen, Esther, replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if it had only been that we were sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who would presume to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. He's right there. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in anger from drinking wine. He went into the palace garden. So he's going out to think about what he's going to do. He's so, so infuriated. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from the queen, from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch. Remember, he's begging. Falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbanah, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed... The gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke, on, spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now, it doesn't stop there. See, now the king needs a new chief of staff. And the text tells us that Esther arranges who that will be. Chapter 8 now, verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Mordecai becomes chief of staff, second most powerful man in the kingdom, and all of Haman's possessions go to Mordecai. But then Esther goes back to the king and reminds him that the old edict, meaning death to the Jews, still stands. It's the unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians. The king says in typical fashion, okay, all righty then, here's my ring. You and Mordecai go write something new. Now, in very clever fashion, Mordecai writes a new edict that undoes the original edict but does so much more. Let's read verse 17 of chapter 8. In each and every province, and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, 
There was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday for the Jews. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Not only were the Jews not going to be destroyed, but now everybody wants to be Jewish. So the Jews are not only spared, but they are blessed. In fact, their enemies are destroyed in chapter 9. So what we see in the book of Esther is God is at work all through it. And God accomplishes his purpose through this book. And the end result was better for Mordecai and Esther and the Jewish people than any of them could have even imagined. Now the great irony is that the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians turned out to be not so very unalterable at all. But there is one law that is unalterable, and that is God's will. God's purposes cannot be stopped, cannot be altered. And all through the Bible, as the more and more I study the Bible, the more and more I see it all throughout the Bible, event after event after event, how much in control God is and how his purposes will not be stopped. So here's some questions I want to ask before we close. And I want all you mothers to think about. How is it that of all the women in the empire, a Jewish girl named Esther becomes queen? And how is it that of all the people in the empire, Mordecai should be the one to save the king from the assassination plot? And how is it that the king should have insomnia on the very night that Haman had built the gallows for Mordecai? And how is it that of all the stories in the world, the one that's read to him on that night is the story of Mordecai saving his life? And how is it that Haman, the scheming murderer who plots against God's people and God's purposes, becomes the victim of his own schemes? And how is it that Mordecai, who's supposed to be the murdered man, instead becomes Haman's replacement? And how is it that the king's ring, which was given to Haman, ends up on Mordecai's finger? And how does a noose, which was intended for Mordecai's neck, end up on Haman's neck? And how is it that the people who are marked, who mark, the people who marked the Jews for destruction, are instead destroyed themselves? Is this just all chance? Of course not. The Bible makes it clear throughout that even though God is unseen, God is always at work. Behind the scenes, his purposes are certain. He did it then and he does it today. God is at work right now in all of our lives in unseen ways. Unknown ways, a lot of hidden ways, unlikely ways, but he's at work in our lives. You can count on it. There is one unalterable law, and that is what God has purposed for you. He will fulfill his purposes to make sure that he will have his people in key strategic places at just the right time. It's for such a time even as this. So why do you work where you work? Why do you live where you live? Why do you know who you know? 
There's so many things that we have no idea what God is up to, but he is up to something. And the end result of what he's up to will be better than we can even imagine. So to all of you moms out there, God is at work in the lives of the people you're most concerned about. So on this Mother's Day, I just want to ask all you moms, just take a deep breath, let it out, and trust that God is in control. He's working. And the end result is going to be better than you can even imagine. Happy Mother's Day. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we're so glad that you're a good, good father. We praise you for your sovereignty, your wisdom, your goodness. We bless you, Lord. And we pray blessing on all the moms today, blessing on every text, email, phone call, every gathering, your blessing on every mother here today, Lord. I pray your blessing on those who long to be moms and aren't, Lord, that you would, again, bless them beyond what they even imagine as well. Lord, we just pray that uh, this week we will be those who shine the light of Christ and be those who trust you, that you're working even in ways that we don't see and doesn't even appear to be possible. That, Lord, just going to, by the time the end comes, we will see that you've done exceedingly abundantly beyond all we've asked or even thought. In Jesus' name.